Hey guys, it's Midweek Reading Night, and I'm going to be reading from True Ghost Stories by Harold Carrington. I'll be right back. Grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Happy Sunday, everybody, and here in the United States, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Whoa, I'm turned way over this way. Hang on. There we go. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team. We're actually an investigation team. Um, we're 45 strong up and down the state of California, which means if you have a, a problem or you think you might have a paranormal issue, we can help you out. It might take us a couple days to get to you because California is this huge state, but we will definitely get to you. Best way to find us is to just hit that hit that G, hit that Google button, and uh, take take a look see for us, and we will pop up whether it's California Haunts Radio or wherever else you will find us because we are on Instagram and everywhere else. Welcome, welcome, and uh, again, if you're in the United States, today is Super Bowl Sunday. Yes, I'm even I'm monitoring the score, and I'm not a huge football fan, but uh, San Francisco, right? Okay, we're just gonna say that 49ers. But uh, anyway, welcome, welcome. Tonight we're going to be reading, and I apologize for running the, uh, let me get this going, wrong button already. Already I'm on the button. I apologize for running the midweek teaser, uh, the midweek intro intro for all this, because to be perfectly honest, um, I was out shopping. I, I had to go pick up two things at, at, Wal at Walmart, and when I went out, I uh, actually thought for once that I was at, uh, uh, I was there, you know, during the game itself, and it turns out I was there for halftime <laughs> and so everybody and their brother hang on let me sit up here so everybody and their brother were in line and buying things at walmart because i because that's one of my things on super bowl sunday I, I will go during the game when everybody's busy you know doing game things so that was my bad so when i got back it was too late to shoot a proper intro so from here on in i'll have a proper intro for sundays our book today is uh true stories or true ghost stories and what I like about this book is that the uh, the the Bureau of Cyclical, I think it's cyclical, cyclical, I keep that word, cyclical. The, the Bureau of Cyclical Investigations uh, was something put together by the founders. I call them the founders of ghost, the, the true founders of ghost hunting. And these guys were scientists uh, they, and they dabbled with psychics and everything else to look into ghost hunting itself and, and see, you know, what the, what the roots were. They were looking at the scientific parts of ghost hunting. They were looking at the non-scientific parts of ghost hunting. So it was kind of cool. And that's, that's what people forget to do today as ghost hunters. You know, you either get teams that are, are that are huge debunkers, you know, or you get teams that are too psychic and too, too into ghosts. And so, you know, there's teams that go into a house just looking for ghosts and there's teams that go, go into a house to debunk ghosts, right? There's never a balance. And like my team that I have, and I'm, you know, I hate to do a shameless plug for my team, but I do have that balance. I have both debunkers and, and believers on my team. 
so it makes for a great combination and, and they tend to work well together and this the, this 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 bunch of guys that got together these scientists that got together back in the late 1800s that's what they did they worked with both both sides so this book is written by by, by one of the members of uh of that society i'm sorry i said bureau it's society uh, um members of that society and uh he has presented and we're, we're coming into where he's telling these these ghost stories that they, could, they couldn't debunk okay but uh, in the beginning of this, of this book the first few chapters of the preface and all this he presented a lot of the the things of you know things like what is a ghost what what, what is a death apparition and things like that he went through the steps to explain them and then he would go through the steps and explain what the science Got, you know what, what what the science people thought of these these types of apparitions or these types of ghosts or, or spirit or whatever so it was very interesting and then then he gets into the true ghost stories that they were able to debunk you know, that they haven't been able to debunk or anything and that's where we're at so today we're going to start with um the ghost who uh, warned i think it's called the ghost who warned a king and uh, we're going to start with that and that, that again that's another ghost story that 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 they haven't or weren't able to debunk so uh we'll start reading that i'll read for about an hour today uh my allergies are really bad so hopefully hopefully i can see the screen you know but uh you never know and uh okay so let me get into that and uh hope you enjoy it if you're home and you're not into football just uh sit back on your couch and grab some popcorn and maybe by the fire some hot cocoa or whatever maybe you're having dinner or, or whatever and just relax or maybe you're in bed. I have people watch me when they're in bed. I have people, I have people like listen to me when they're cleaning house. One of my uh, loyal listeners carries me in their pocket and carries me around when they're mopping floors and doing laundry. Hey, I'm cool. I'm cool. I don't get out much. Traveling around the house is cool. So here we go. <laughs> Let me find the right thing. Okay. How a ghost warned the king. So like I said, bear with me. I may have to put some, uh, Rewedding re re solution in my contacts because I am having a real bad allergy day with my contacts. So I'm just going to give you guys a heads up. Kings and queens are not exempt from visitations of the supernatural. Indeed, a large number of royal dignitaries have seen ghosts and have been haunted by spectators in as unpleasant a manner as any ordinary mortal. Were we to hunt through the pages of history, we should find that many of these, some of which it will doubtless be of interest to give at some future time. The following account is taken from the annals of the Kingdom of Scotland and is told in queer old English. Oh, this will be fun. Along with S's, along with S's, S's and so on. Okay, I'm trying. Making it very hard to read in the original. Uh-oh. I interpret it into modern English as best I can, maintaining its form. Oh, this will be fun today. Here we go. I believe this is James the Fourth. Let me think. I see. Yeah, while James the Fourth stayed at <laughs> Linlith, Linlithgow, see, or, or Scotland, right? Linlithgow, to gather the scattered remains of his army, which had been defeated by the Earl of Surrey at Flodden Field, he went into the church of Saint Michael there to hear evening prayer. While he was at his devotion, a remarkable figure of an ancient man with flowing amber-colored hair hanging over his shoulders, his forehead high and incl inclining to baldness, his garments of a fine blue color, color, somewhat long and girded together with a fine white cloth of comely and very reverent aspect, was seen inquiring for the king. 
On his majesty being pointed out to him, he made his way through the crowd till he came to him. And then, with a clown's way through the crowd, with a clown's way, wait a minute, and then, yeah, and then, with a clown's way through the crowd, till he came to him. And then, wait a minute, what did I do? And then with the clowns, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. See, it's all jammed together here, so I'm just trying to sort it out. And then, with the clowns' simplicity, leaning over the the cannon's feet, he addressed him in the following words. Sir, I am sitting hither to entreat you to delay your due. To delay your intended, I'm sorry. Sir, I'll try this again. It's going to be one of those days. Sir. I am sent hither to entrust you, to entreat you, to delay your intended expedition for this time, and proceed no further. For if you do, you will be unfortunate and not prosper in your enterprise, nor any of your followers. I am further charged to warn you not to follow the acquaintance, company, or counsel of women, as you value your life, honor, and estate. After giving him this admonition, he withdrew himself back through the crowd and disappeared. When service was ended, the king inquired earnestly after him, but he could not be found or heard of anywhere. Neither could any of the bystanders, of which many narrowly watched him, resolving afterwards to have discoursed with him, feel or perceive how, when or where, he passed from them, having in a manner vanished from their sight. This caused the king to feel some uneasiness. For, said he, if he were were a mortal man, how did he go quickly hence? And how did he give me such advice, which I, of all men, know at this time to be of value? The king was sorely puzzled and called the warden of the church to him and questioned him as to the man whom he had seen. And when the warden had heard the tale from the king, he questioned him in turn as to the man's appearance, whether he was this and that, and of the man's manner of speech. And when the king had answered to his satisfaction, he turned pale and said, O king, the, per- the personage whom you saw today was not, was not a mortal man, but one dead long ago, one who lived and died close here and known to many of us well. He has been known to come before in times of great stress, and his advice has always been good. Truly, my lord, you have this, you have this day seen an apparition of a dead man. And the king marveled at what he had seen. Thus ends the curious old narrative. It will be seen that several others saw the ghost besides the king. These are called collective cases. But those engaged in in, in, uh, cyclical studies, for the reason that several persons saw the figure at the same time, or collectively, such cases have never been satisfactorily explained. For, if the phantom were a mere hallucination, as many claim, how did several see it at once? The Stains of Blood the following narrative was personally related to Robert Dale Owen by a clergyman of the Church of England, who was chaplain at the time to the British legation in Florence. It is as follows. In the year 1856, I was staying with my wife and children at a favorite watering place. In order to attend some affairs of my own, I determined to leave my family there for three or four days. Accordingly, on the 8th of August, I took the railway and arrived that evening an unexpected guest at the hall, at, at the hall, the residence of a gentleman whose acquaintance I had recently made, and with whom my sister was then staying. I arrived late, soon afterwards went to bed, and before long fell asleep. 
Awakening after three or four hours, I was not surprised to find that I could sleep no more, for I never rest well in a strange bed. After trying, therefore, in vain, to induce sleep, I began to arrange my plans for the day. I had been engaged some little time in this way when I became suddenly sensitive to the fact that there was a light in my room. Turning round, I distinctly perceived a female figure, and what attracted my special attention was that the light by which I saw it emanated from itself. I watched the figure attentively. The features were not perceptible. After moving a little distance, it disappeared as suddenly as it had appeared. My first thoughts were that there was some trick. I immediately got out of bed, struck a light, and found my bedroom door still locked. I then carefully examined the walls to ascertain if there was any other concealed means of entrance or exit, but none could I find. I drew the curtains and opened the shutters, but all outside was silent and dark, there being no moonlight. After examining the room in every part, I went back to bed and began thinking calmly over the whole matter. What had I seen? And why did it appear? In the morning, as soon as I was up and dressed, I told my sister what I had seen. She then informed me that the house had the reputation of being haunted, and that a murder had been committed in it, but not in the room of which I slept. Later in the day I left, after making my sister promise to do all she could to unravel the mystery. On the following Wednesday morning, I received a letter from my sister, in which she informed me that, since I left, she had made inquiries and had ascertained that the murder was committed in the very room in which I slept. She added that she proposed visiting us the next day, and that she would like me to write out an account of what I had seen, together with the plan of the room, and that on that plan she wished me to mark the place of the appearance and disappearance of the figure. This I immediately did, and the next day when my sister arrived, she asked me if I had complied with the request. I replied, pointing to the drawing room table. Yes, there is the account and the plan. As she rose to examine it, I prevented her, saying, Do not look at it until you have told me all you have to say, because you might unintentionally color your story by what you may read there. Thereupon, she informed me that she had the carpet taken up in the room I, that I had occupied, and that the marks of blood from the murdered person were there, plainly visible, on a particular part of the floor. At my request, she also then drew a plan of the room and marked upon it the spots which still bore traces of blood. The two plans, my sister's and mine, were now compared, and we verified the most remarkable fact that the place she had marked as the beginning and ending of the traces of blood coincided exactly with the spots marked on my plan as those on which the female figure had appeared and disappeared. Face to Face the following case is recorded by the wife of Colonel Lewin and is reported in the proceedings of the SPR. In January 1868, I took a house close to Hastings. One night there was a heavy storm. The weather was bitterly cold and the fire was burning. And the fire was burning in my bedroom when I went to bed at 10.30. I tried to go to sleep, but it was no use. The noise of the wind and the rain kept me awake. I must have been lying like this for a couple hours when I became conscious of what seemed like a light in the room. I thought the fire must have rekindled itself and crawled along on my knees on the bed to look at the fire over the high wooden foot, to see how this might be. I had no thought of anything but the fire, and was not nervous 
in the slightest degree. As I raised myself on my knees and looked over the foot of the bed, I found myself face to face at a distance of about three feet with the semblance of a man. I never for a moment thought he was a man, but was struck with the feeling that this was one from the dead. The light seemed to emanate from around this figure, not only from portions which I saw clearly were, were the head, you know, were the head and shoulders. The face I shall never forget. It was pale, emaciated, with a thin, high-bridged nose and eyes deeply sunk and glowing in the sockets with a sort of glare. A long beard was seemingly rolled in under a white comforter, and on the head was slouched a felt hat. I had a nervous shock and felt a dead person was looking upon me, a living one, was looking upon me, a living one, but I had no sensation of being actually frightened until the figure moved slowly as if in interposing between me and the door. Then horror overcame me, and I fell back in a dead faint. How long I remained unconscious, I know not, but I came to myself cold and cramped, and the room was quite dark, and nothing was visible. Thoroughly tired out, I got into bed and slept until the morning. This one's called Julia Darling. The next example is from the proceedings of the SPR, Volume four, volume five, pages four forty four forty one, and Mister Meyer states that the writer was well known to him. The account reads in part: My mother died on the twenty fourth of June, eighteen seventy four, at Slima, Malta, where we were then residing for her health. Seven nights later, she appeared to me. I seemed to have been sleeping some time. When I woke, and standing at, standing by my bedside, crying and wringing her hand, I saw my mother standing by my bedside, crying and wringing her hands. I had not been awake long enough to remember she was dead, and exclaimed quite naturally, Why, dear, what's the matter? And then suddenly remembering, I screamed. The nurse sprang up from the next room, but on the top step flung herself on her knees and began to tell and began to tell her beads and cry, and began to tell her beads and cry. My father at the same moment arrived at the opposite door, and I heard his sudden exclamation of, Julia, darling. My mother turned towards him and then to me, and, wringing her hands again, retreated toward the nursery and was lost. The nurse afterwards stated that she distinctly felt something pass her. My father ordered her out of the room, and telling me that I had only been dreaming, stayed until I fell asleep. The next day, however, he told me that he too had seen the vision, and that he hoped to do so again, and that if, if ever she came, to see me. I was not to be frightened, but she never appeared again. This one's called The Cut Across the Cheek. In the narrative which follows, the apparition conveyed, by its very appearance, information which the, which the recipient could not possibly have known. It is from Mr. H. Walton of Dent, Sedberg, England and was sent to Mr. Stade, who published it. Let me check something really quick. Make sure the camera's still working right. It doesn't really matter, but... Okay, wow. Still got the camera. Hello, Pamela. In the month of April, 1881, I was located in Norfolk, and my duties took me once a fortnight to a fishing village on the coast, so I can guarantee the following facts. It is customary for the fishing, for the fishing smacks to go to Grimsby, lime fishing in the spring. 
The vessel started one afternoon on their journey north. In the evening, a heavy northeast wind blew, and one of the boats mistook the white surf on the rocks for the reflection of a lighthouse. In consequence, the boat got into a shallow water. A heavy sea came and swept two men from the deck. One man grasped a rope and was saved. The other, a younger man, failed to save himself, though an expert swimmer. It was said that he was heard to shout at about 11 o'clock. Towards 1 o'clock, the young man's mother, lying awake, saw his apparition come to the foot of the bed, clad in white, and she screamed with fright and told her husband what she'd seen and that Jay was drowned. He sought in vain to calm her by saying that she must have been dreaming. She asserted the contrary. Next day, when her daughter came in with a telegram of the sad event, both her daughter, before her daughter had time to speak, she cried out, Jay is drowned, and became unconscious. She remained in this state for many hours. When she regained consciousness, she told him particularly and distinctly that she had, what she had seen. And what, and what is the point of this remarkable thing, she said, if ever the body is found, it has a cut across the cheek, specifying which cheek. The body was found some days later as exactly as the mother had seen it. There was a cut on the cheek. The Invisible Hand The following account was sent to the SPR ghost, SPR. Ghosts are usually seen. They are sometimes heard. They are very rarely felt. The account which follows is an example of the latter class, in which the ghost was not only seen, but touched. After stating that she was visiting a friend of hers in the country, when the event occurred, the narrator proceeds. We went upstairs together, I being perhaps a couple of steps behind my friend. When on researching the topmost step, when I'm sorry, when I'm reaching, ha, the topmost step, I felt something suddenly slip behind me from an unoccupied room on the left of the stairs. Thinking it must be imagination. No one being in the house except for the widow and servant who occupied rooms on another landing. I did not speak to my friend who turned off to a room on the right, but walked quickly into my room, which faced the staircase. Still feeling as though a tall figure was, was bending over me, I turned on the gas, struck a light, and was in the act of applying it when I felt a heavy grasp on my arm of a hand, minus the middle finger. Upon this I uttered a loud cry, which brought my friend, the widow lady, and the servant girl into the room to inquire the cause of my alarm. The, the two latter turned very pale on hearing the story. The house was thoroughly searched, but nothing was discovered. Some weeks passed, and I had ceased to be alarmed at the occurrence. When I chanced to mention it, well, spending an afternoon with some friends. A gentleman asked me if I've ever heard of a description or seen a carta of a lady's late husband. On receiving a reply in the negative, he said singularly enough, he was tall, had a slight stoop, and had lost his middle finger on his hand. On my return, I inquired of the servant, who had been in the family from childhood, if such were the case, and learned that it was quite correct, and that she, the girl, and once, when sleeping in the same room, awakened on feeling someone, someone pressing down on her knees, and on opening her eyes, saw her late master by the bedside, on which she fainted, and had never dared to enter the room after dark since. 
She is not of being imaginative, nor am I. When I was grasped, however, I did not see anything. But worse was to follow. It so chanced that I had to sleep in that room once more, as the house was full of company, and there was nowhere else for me to go. I had by this time got over my fears and hardly minded the idea of sleeping in that room at all. I left the room door open, turned out the light, and was soon sound asleep. Sometime in the early hours of the morning, I awoke with an indescribable feeling. I was suddenly wide awake without the slightest traces of sleep, yet I did not know how I awoke and had not any recollection of waking, but there, was, but there I was wide awake and staring up at the ceiling with wide open eyes. My right hand, what, let's see, where am I? I got lost. Hang on a second. Okay. My right hand was hanging over the side of the bed so that it fell outwards into the room. Imagine my horror, then, in feeling a hand suddenly grasp my hand, and I felt distinctly that it was minus the middle finger. The hand was icy cold and of a peculiar hardness. I hung on to the hand, however, determined to go to the bottom of the affair. I gripped tightly and still retained the hand in my grip. But bending over, I stretched out my left hand and, with fingers of that hand, felt over the hand and wrist I was holding. I then commenced to trace it up the arm. I had about reached the elbow or a little below when the arm suddenly ended, came to nothing, and was no more. Yet the hand was still in mine, and it was solid as ever. This gave me such a shock that I let go of the hand I was holding and sank back onto my pillows. Then terror took possession of me, and I do not know what happened later. I only know that I had brain fever, which laid me low for several weeks. The occurrence has never been explained. The Apparition of the Radiant Boy The following is a famous case, well known as the Apparition of the Radiant Boy. It was seen by the Marquis of Londonderry and frequently spoken by him afterwards. At the time of the appearance, Lord Londonderry was on a visit to a friend in the north of Ireland. The apartment assigned to him was one calculated to foster the, to foster the belief in ghosts. Because of its richly carved paneling, its huge fireplace, looking like an open entrance into a tomb, and the vast, ponderous draperies that hung in thick folds around the room. Lord Londonderry examined his chamber. He made himself acquainted with the forms and faces of the ancient possessors of the mansion, whose portraits hung around the room. Then, after dismissing his valet, he retired to bed. His candles had not long been extinguished when he perceived a light gleaming in the, on the draperies of the lofty canopies over his head. Conscious that this was no fire in the grate, that the curtains were closed, that the chamber had been in perfect darkness, but a few minutes before, he supposed that some intruder must have accidentally entered this apartment, and, turning hastily around to the side from which the light proceeded, saw, to his infinite astonishment, not the form of a human visitor, but the figure of a fair boy who seemed to be, to be, seemed to be garmented in rays of mild and tempered glory, which beamed palely from his slender form, like the faint light of a declining moon that rendered objects nearest him dimly and indistinctly visible. The spirit stood but a short distance from the side of the bed. 
certain that his own faculties were not deceiving him, Lord Londonbury got up and moved towards the figure. It retreated before him. As he slowly advanced and with equal pace, slowly retired. It entered the gloomy arch of the capacious chimney and then sank into the earth. Lord Ludenberry returned to his bed, but not to rest. His mind was harassed by the consideration of the extraordinary event which had occurred to him. Was it real? Was it the work of imagination? Was it the result of imposture? It was all incomprehensible. He resolved in the morning not to mention the appearance till he should have well observed the manners and countenances of the family. He was conscious that, if any deception had been practiced, its authors would be too delighted with their success to conceal the vanity of their triumph. When the guests assembled at the breakfast table, the eye of Lord Londonbury searched in vain for the, latest, for the latent smiles, those conscious looks, that silent communication between the parties by which the authors of such domestic conspiracies are generally betrayed. Everything apparently proceeded in its ordinary course. At last the hero of the tale felt bound to mention the occurrence of the night. At its conclusion, his host said, the circumstances which you have just recounted appear to be very extraordinary to those that have not long been inmates of the dwelling and are not conversant with the legends of my family, and to those who are, the event which has happened will only serve as, as cooperation of an old tradition that has long been related of the apartment in which you stayed. You have seen the radiant boy. Be content. It is an omen of prosperous fortunes. I would rather that this subject should not be mentioned. And here the affair ended. Fisher's Ghost The following incident comes from Australia, and is well known in that part of the world. It is usually known as Fisher's Ghost, and is, and is to the following effect. A number of years ago, a free settler named John Fisher, who had long successfully cultivated a grant of land in a remote district, and who was, who was known to be possessed of a considerable sum of money, had been, excuse me, had been missing for some time after having visited the nearest market town. Whether he had been in the habit of, of repairing with certain cattle and produce for sale. Okay. An inquiry was instituted by his acquaintances, but his head servant, or rather his assistant on the farm, an ex-convict, who had lived many years with him in that situation, declared that his master had left the colony for some time on business and that he expected him to return in a few months. As this man was generally known as Fisher's confidential servant, his assertion was believed, though some expressed surprise at the settler's abrupt and clandestine departure, for his character was good in every way. The month's wonder soon subsided, however, and Fisher was forgotten. His assistant, meanwhile, managed the farm, bought and sold, and spent money freely. If questioned, which was but rarely, he would express his surprise at his master's delay and pretend to expect him daily. A few months after he had been first missed, a neighboring settler, who was returning late on Saturday night from the market town, had occasion to pass within a half mile of Fisher's house. As he was riding by the fence, which separated the farm from the high road, he distinctly saw the figure of a man seated on the railing, and at once recognized the form and features of his lost neighbor. 
He instantly stopped and called to him by name. But the figure descended from the railing and, pointing appealingly toward the house, walked slowly across the field in that direction. The settler, having lost sight of him in the gloom, proceeded on his journey and informed his family and neighbors that he had seen Fisher and spoken to him. On inquiry, however, Fisher's assistant said that he had not arrived and affected to laugh at the settler's story, insinuating that he had probably drunk too freely at the market. The neighbors were, however, not satisfied. The strange appearance of Fisher, sitting on the rail and pointing, with so much meaning, toward his own house aroused their suspicions, and they insisted upon a strict and immediate investigation by the police. The party of investigators took with them an old and clever native. They had now proceeded far in the underbrush when they discovered a log on which was dark brown stain. This the native examined and at once declared it to be white man's blood. He then, without hesitation, set off at full run toward a pond, toward a pond not far from the house. Guys, this is the, this is the late 1800s, so we're going to have stuff like white man's blood, native, blah, 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 things like that. So let's just keep in mind that these books are from the 1800s. He ran backwards and forwards about the pond like a dog on the scent, and finally, borrowing a ramrod from one of the settlers, ran it into the earth. He did this in one or two places and finally said, White man here. The spot was immediately dug up, and a corpse, identified as that of Fisher, was discovered, its skull fractured, and evidently many weeks buried. The guilty assistant was immediately arrested and tried in Sydney, on circumstantial evidence alone, strong enough, however, to convict him, in spite of his self-possession and, and protestations of innocence. He was sentenced to death, and, previous to his execution, made an ample confession of his guilt. Harriet Hosmer's Vision Lydia Maria Child relates the following interesting narrative. When Harriet Hosmer, the sculptor, visited her native country a few years ago, I had an interview with her, during which our conversation happened to turn on dreams and visions. I have had some experiences in that way, said she. Let me tell you a singular circumstance that happened to me in Rome. An Italian girl named Rosa was in my employ for a long time, but was finally obliged to return to her mother on account of confirmed ill health. We obliged to return to her mother. We were obliged to return her mother. Okay, I'm sorry. We we were mutually sorry to part with her. For we for we liked each other. When I took my customary exercise on horseback, I fre I, fre I frequently called to see her. On one of those occasions, I found her brighter than I had seen her for some time past. I had long relinquished hopes of her recovery, but there, but there was nothing in her appearance that gave the appearance the appearance of immediate danger. I left her with the expectation of calling to see her again many times. During the remainder of the day, I was busy in my studio, and I do not recollect that Rosa was in my thoughts after I had parted from her. I retired the rest in good health and in quiet frame of mind. But I woke from a sound sleep and the oppressive feeling that someone was in the room. I wondered at the sensation, for it was entirely new to me, but in vain I tried to dispel it. I peered beyond the curtains of my bed, but could distinguish no objects in the darkness. Trying to gather my thoughts, I reflected that the door was locked, and that I had put the key under my bolster. I felt for it and found it, where I had placed the key, 
where I had placed it. I said to myself that I had probably had some ugly dream. It had, it had weight with a vague impression of it still in my mind. Reasoning thus, I arranged myself comfortably for another nap. I am habitually a good sleeper and a stranger to fear. But do what I would, the idea still haunted me that someone was in the room, finding it impossible to sleep. I longed for daylight to dawn, that I might rise and pursue my customary avocation. It was not long before I was able to dimly I was able dimly to distinguish the furniture in my room and soon after to hear familiar noises of servants opening windows and doors. An old clock with ring, with a ringing vibration preceded the hour. I counted one, two, three, four, five, and resolved to rise immediately. My bed was partially screened by a long curtain looped up at one side. As I raised my head from the pillow, Rosa looked inside the curtain and smiled at me. The idea of anything supernatural did not occur to me. I was simply surprised and exclaimed, Why, Rosa? How came, how came you here when you were so ill? In that old familiar tone, to which I was so much accustomed, a voice replied, I'm well now. With no other thought but that of greeting her joyfully, I sprang out of bed. There was no Rosa there. When I became convinced that there was no one in the room but myself, I recollected the fact that my door was locked and thought I must have seen a vision. At the breakfast table, I said to the old lady with whom I boarded, Rosa is dead. I then summoned a messenger and sent him to inquire how Rosa was. He returned with the answer that she died that morning at five o'clock. I wrote the story as Miss Hobster, Miss Hobster, Hosmer, sorry, told it to me. And after I had shown it to her, I asked her if she had any objection to its being published without suppression of names. She replied, you reported the story of Rosa correctly. Make what you use, please, of it. You cannot think it more interesting or unaccountable than I do myself. The Apparition of the Murdered Boy At the commencement of the French Revolution, Lady Pennyman and her two daughters and her friend, Mrs. Atkins, retired to, retired to, to, to Liesel, where the two daughters and her friend, okay, where, I'm sorry, they had hired, sorry, it's like one big clump, uh, where they had hired a, a large and handsome house. A few weeks after, after taking possession, the housekeeper, with many apologies for being obliged to mention anything that might appear so idle and absurd, came to the apartment in which her mistress was sitting and said that two of the servants who had accompanied her ladyship from England had that morning given warning and expressed a determination of quitting her ladyship's service on account of the mysterious noises by which they had been by which they had been night after night disturbed and terrified. The room from which the sounds were supposed to have proceeded was at a distance from Lady Penniman's apartments and immediately over those that were occupied by the servants. To quiet the alarm, Lady Penniman resolved on leaving her own chamber for a time and establishing herself in the one which had been large, lately occupied by the domestics. The room above was a long, spacious one, which appeared to have been for a long time deserted. In the center of the chamber was a large iron cage. It was said that the 
the late proprietor of the house, a young man of enormous wealth, had in his minority been confined in this cage by his uncle and guardian and starved to death. On the first night or two of Lady Penniman's being established in her new apartment, she met with no interruption. This quiet, however, was of very short duration. One night she was awakened from her sleep by a slow and heavy step pacing the chamber overhead. It continued to move backwards and forwards for nearly an hour. There were more complaints from the housekeeper. No servants would remain. Lady Penniman began herself to be alarmed. She requested the advice of Mrs. Atkins, a woman devoid of every kind of superstitious fear and, and tried of courage. Mrs. Atkins determined to make the cage room itself her sleeping quarters. A bed was accordingly placed in the apartment, and Mrs. Atkins retired to rest, <clears throat> attended by her favorite spaniel, saying, as she bade them all good night, I and my dog are able to complete with a myriad of ghosts. Mrs. Atkins examined the chamber in every imaginable direction. She sounded every panel of the wainscot to prove there was no hollowness that might argue a concealed passage, and having securely bolted the door of the room, retired to rest, confident that she was secure against every material visitor, and totally incredulous of the airy encroachments of spiritual beings. She had only been asleep a few minutes when her dog, which lay by her bedside, leaped, howling and terrified on the bed. The bolted door of the chamber slowly opened, and a pale, thin, sickly youth came in, cast his eyes mildly towards her, walked up to the iron cage in the middle of the room, and then leaned in the melancholy, leaned in the melancholy attitude of one revolving in his mind the sorrows of a cheerless and unblessed existence. After a while, he again withdrew and retired by the way he entered. Mrs. Atkins, on witnessing his departure, felt the return of her resolution. She persuaded herself to believe the figure the work of some skillful impostor, and she determined <clears throat> she determined on following his footsteps. She took up her lap and hastened to the door. To her infinite surprise, she discovered it to be fastened. As she heard herself as she had herself left it on retiring to bed. On withdrawing the bolt and opening the door, she saw the back of the youth descending the staircase. She followed till, on reaching the foot of the stairs, the form seemed to sink into the earth. The event was related, excuse me, the, the event was related to Lady Pennyman. She determined to remain no longer in her present habitation. Another residence was offered in the vicinity of, uh, of the Liesel, and this she took under the pretext that it was better suited to the size of her family. The Ghost of the Yellow Calico The Reverend Elwyn Thomas, 35, Park Village East, Northwest London, has published a very remarkable experience of his own. It goes as follows. Twelve years ago, says the doctor, I was the second minister of the Bryn Mawr Wesh Wesleyan Circuit in the South Wales District. It was a beautiful evening in June when, after conducting the service at, at, at Laurentier, evening in June, okay, I'm sorry about that. After conducting the service at Laurentier, I told the gentleman with whom I generally stayed when preaching there that there 
that three young friends had come to meet me from, from Kirkenau, and that I meant to accompany them back for about half a mile on their return journey, so would not be home before nine o'clock. When I wished good night to my friends, it was about twenty minutes to nine, but still light enough to see a good distance. The subject of our conversation all the way from the chapel until we parted was of a certain eccentric old character who then belonged to the to the Crickenwell Church. I walked a little further down down the road than I intended in order to hear the end of a very amusing story about him. Our conversation had no reference whatsoever to ghosts. Personally, I was a strong disbeliever in ghosts and invariably ridiculed anyone whom I thought superstitious enough to believe in them. When I had walked about a hundred yards away from my friends, after parting from them, I saw on the bank of the canal what I thought at the moment was an old beggar. I couldn't help asking myself where this old man had come from. I had not seen him in going down the road. I turned round quite unconcernedly to have another look at him, and had no sooner done so than I saw, within half a yard of me, one of the most remarkable and startling sights I hoped it will never be the right to see. Almost on a level with my own face, I saw that of an old man. Over every feature of which the putty-colored skin was drawn tightly, except the forehead, which was lined with deep wrinkles. The lips were extremely thin and appeared perfectly bloodless. The toothless mouth stood half open. The cheeks were hollow and sunken like those of a corpse and the eyes, which seemed far back in the middle of the head, were unnaturally luminous and piercing. The terrible object was wrapped in two bands of old yellow calico, one of which was drawn under the chin and over the cheeks and tied at the top of the head. The other was drawn round the top of the wrinkled forehead and fastened at the back of the head. So deep and indelible an impression it made on my mind, that, were I, were I an artist, I could paint the face today. What I have thus tried to describe in many words, I saw at a glance. Acting on the impulse at the moment, I turned my face toward the village and ran away from the horrible vision with all my might for about 60 yards. I then stopped and turned around to see how far I had dis distanced it. And to my unspeakable horror, there it was still face to face with me as if I had not moved an inch. I grasped my umbrella and raised it to strike him. And you can imagine my feelings when I could see nothing between the face and the ground, except an irregular column of intense darkness, through which my umbrella passed as a stick goes through water. I'm sorry to say that I took to my heels with increasing speed, a little further than the space of this second encounter. The road, which led to my host's house, branched off the main road. Having gone two or three yards down this branch road, I turned around again. He had not followed me after I left the main road, but I could see the horribly fascinating face quite as plainly as when it was close by. It stood for a few minutes looking intently at me from the center of the main road. I then realized fully that it was not a human being in flesh and blood, and, with every vestige of fear gone, I quickly walked toward it to put my, to put my questions, but I was disappointed, for no sooner... Excuse me. For no sooner. Where am I at? See, I got lost again. Okay, for no sooner as I made toward it, than it began to move slowly to the road, keeping the same distance above it 
until it reached the churchyard wall. It then crossed the road and disappeared near where the yew tree stood inside. The moment it disappeared, I became unconscious. Two hours later, I came to myself and I made my way slowly to my home. I could not say a word to explain what had happened, though I tried several times. It was five o'clock in the morning when I regained my power of speech. The whole of the following week, I was laid up with a nervous prostration. My host, after questioning me closely, told me that 15 years before that time, an old recluse of eccentric character, answering in every detail to my description, lived in a house whose ruins still stand close by where I saw the face disappear. Chapter 3 More Phantasms of the Dead The cases included in this chapter are also very well authenticated, some of them being longer and more detailed than those included in the last chapter. I shall begin with a group of so-called pact cases. Cases, that is, in which a pact or agreement was made before death to appear after death, if possible, when that promise seems to have been kept. The first case of this character is short and merely illustrative of the kind of ghostly phenomenon to be expected in cases of this nature. The latter cases are better attested. I give first the case of Marquise, I can't even say this word, R-A-M-B-O-U-I-L-L-E-T, all right? We will call him Mr. R, because I don't want to screw it up. I think it's Marquise de, Marquise of uh, Ramboulet. Ramboulet. I don't want to mess it up. Okay. The story of the Marquise of R appearing after his death to his cousin, the Marquise de, the, 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 the Marquise de Prissy, is well authenticated. These two noblemen, talking one day concerning the affairs of the next world, in a manner which showed they did not believe much about it, entered into an agreement that the first who died should come and give intelligence to the other. Soon afterwards, the Marquis of R set out for Flanders, which was then the seat of war, and the Marquis de Pressy remained in Paris, being ill of a violent fever. About six weeks after, early one morning, he heard someone draw the curtains of his bed, and turning to see who it was, discovered the Marquis of R in a buff coat with boots. He, he instantly got out of bed and attempted to shake hands with his friend, but R drew back and told him he had only come to perform the promise he had formerly made, that nothing was more certain than, the, than his life, and that he earnestly advised him to alter his mode of life, for in the final first battle he would be engaged in, he would certainly fall. Pressy made a fresh attempt to touch his friend, but he immediately withdrew. Pressy lay upon his bed, wondering upon the strangeness of the circumstances for some time, when he saw the same appearance re-enter the apartment. R, finding that Pressy still disbelieved what he was told, showed him the wound of which he had died, and from which the blood still seemed to flow. Soon after this, Pressy received a confirmation of R's death and was killed himself, according to the prediction, in the Civil Wars at the Battle of Faubourg saint Antoine. Lord Brahm's vision. 
The promise to appear was given and kept in the case of the apparition seen by Lord Brougham. The story is given as follows in the first volume of Lord Brougham's memoirs. A most remarkable thing happened to me, so remarkable that I must tell the story from the beginning. After I left the high school, I went with G, my most intimate friend, to attend the classes in the university. There was no divinity class, but we frequently, in our walks, discussed many grave subjects, among others the immortality of the soul and a future state. This question, and the possibility of the dead appearing to the living, were the subject of such specula as most speculation, and we actually committed the folly of drawing up an agreement, written with our blood, to the effect that whichever of us died, the first should appear to the other, and thus solve any doubts we had entertained of the life after death. After we had finished our classes at the college, G went to India, having got an appointment there in the civil service. He seldom wrote to me, and after a lapse of a few years, I had nearly forgotten his existence. One day I had taken, as I have said, a warm bath, and, while lying in it and enjoying the comfort of the heat, I turned my head round, looking towards the chair on which I had deposited my clothes. As I was about to get out of the bath, okay, on the chair sat G, looking calmly at me. How I got out of the bath, I, I know not. But on recovering my senses, I found myself sprawling on the floor. The apparition, or whatever it was that had taken the likeness of G, had disappeared. This vision had produced such a shock that I had no inclination to talk about it, or to speak about it, even to Stuart. But the impression it made upon me was too vivid to be easily forgotten, and so strongly was I affected by it that I have been easily that that I have here written down the whole history, with the date December nineteenth, and all the particulars, and they are now fresh before me. No doubt, I had fallen asleep, and that the apparition presented so distinctly before my eyes was a dream. I cannot, for a moment, doubt. Hang on a second. Okay. That I cannot for a moment doubt. Yet for years, I had no communication with G, nor had there been anything to recall with him to my recollection. Nothing had taken place concerning our Swedish travels connected with G, or with India, or with anything relating to him, or to any member of his family. I recollected quickly enough our old discussion and the bargain we had made. I could not discharge from my mind the impression that G must have died, and that his appearance to me was to be received by me as proof of a future state. This was on December 19th, 1799. In October 1862, Lord Brom added as a postscript, I have just been copying out from my journal the account of this strange dream. Jotisma mortis imago. And now, to finish the story begun about six years ago. Soon after my return to Edinburgh, there arrived a letter from India announcing G's death and stating that he died on December 19th. Lord Brahms attempts to account for this vision by stating that it was probably a dream. But this is negative. <laughs> I've got this. But this is negative by the fact that he was so startled by it 
as to scramble out of the bath in a great hurry, which would not at all be likely had it been a dream, for, as we know, nothing surprises us in dreams, or seems unlikely. And even granting that, if it were a dream, we still have the coincidence to account for. Why should Lord Brahm have dreamed this particular dream at the very moment his friend died? The fact has yet to be accounted for. The Tyrone Ghost This is also known as the Beresford Ghost, and is one of the most famous cases of its kind on record. The account, as herein given, is that supplied by the granddaughter of Lady Beresford, to whom the experience came, and hence may be considered as accurate as it can be made. It furnishes us with a definite example of a ghost that touches and leaves a permanent mark on his visit, even after, ever afterwards. Here is the account. In the month of October, 1693, Sir Tristram and Lady Beresford went on a visit to her sister, Lady McGill, at Gill Hall, now the seat of Lord William. One morning, Sir Tristram arose early, leaving Lady Beresford to sleep, and went out for a walk for breakfast. When his wife joined the table very late, her appearance and the embarrassment of her manner attracted general attention, especially that of her husband. He made anxious inquiries as to her health, and asked her apart what had happened to her, to her wrist, which was tied up with a black ribbon tightly round it. She earnestly entreated him not to inquire more then or thereafter as to the cause of her wearing or continuing afterwards to wear that ribbon. For, she added, you will never see me without it. He replied, since you urge it so vehemently, I promise you not to inquire about it. After completing her hurried breakfast, she made inquiries as to whether the post had yet arrived. It had not yet come in, and Sir Tristram asked, Why are you so particularly eager about the letters today? Because I expect to hear of Lord Tyra's death, which took place on Tuesday. Well, remarked Sir Tristram, I never put you down for a superstitious person, but I suppose that some idle dream had disturbed you. Shortly after, the servant brought in the letters. One was sealed with black wax. It is as I expected, she cried. He is dead. The letter was from Lord Tyrone Stewart. The letter was from blah, the letter was from Lord Tyrone Stewart to inform them that his master had died in Dublin on Tuesday, 14 October, at 4 p.m. Sir Tristram endeavored to console her and begged her to restrain her grief. When she assured him that she felt relieved and easier, now that she knew the actual fact, she added, "I can now give you a most satisfactory piece of intelligence, viz." that I am with child, and that it will be a boy. A son was born the following July. On her 47th birthday, Lady Beresford summoned her children to her side and said to them, I have something of deep importance to communicate to you, my dear children, before I die. You are no strangers to the intimacy and affection which subsisted in the early life between Lord, Ty Lord Tyrone and myself. We had made a solemn promise to one another, that whichever died first should, if permitted, appear to the other. One night, years after this interchange of promises, I was sleeping with your father at Gill Hall when I suddenly awoke, screamed out, 
I'm sorry, when I suddenly awoke and discovered Lord Tyrone sitting visibly by the side of the bed. I screamed out and vainly tried to arouse Sir Tristan. Tell me, I said, Lord Tyrone, why and wherefore are you at this time of the night? Have you then forgotten our promises to each other, pleasure and early life? I died on Tuesday at four o'clock. I've been permitted thus to appear. I am also suffered to inform you that you are with child and will produce a son who will marry an heiress, that Sir Tristan will not live long, that you will marry again and you will die in your 47th year. I begged from him some convincing sign of, or proof so that when the morning came I might rely upon it and that it was not the phantom of my imagination. He caused the hangings of the bed to be drawn in an unusual way in an impossible manner through an iron hook. I still was not satisfied when he wrote his signature in my pocketbook. I wanted, however, more substantial proof of his visit. When, when he laid his hand, which was cold as marble, on my wrist, the sinews shrunk up, the nerves withered at the touch. Now, he said, let no mortal eye, while you live, ever see that wrist, and vanished. While I was conversing with him, my thoughts were calm. But as soon as he disappeared, I felt chilled with horror and dismay. A cold sweat came over me, and I again endeavored, but vainly, to awaken Sir Tristan. A flood of tears came to my relief, and I fell asleep. That year, Lady Beresford died on her deathbed. Lady Riverson unbound the black ribbon and found the wrist exactly as Lady Beresford had described it. Every nerve withered. Every sinew shrunk. Dead or alive. This will be the last one for tonight, you guys. In the following case, the ghost kept its promise to appear, doing so to all appearances in spite of great obstacles. The incident is reported in Mr. W.T. Steed's Real Ghost Stories, page 205 to page 208. The following incident occurred to me some years ago, and all the details can be substantiated. The date was August 26, 1867, at midnight. I was then residing in the neighborhood of Hull, and held an appointment under the crown which necessitated my repairing thither every day for a few hours' duty. My birth was almost... Birth, B-E-R-T-H. My birth was almost a censure, and I had for some time been engaged to a young North Country heiress. It being understood that on our marriage I, I, I should take her name and stand for the country, or for the county, and rather for one of its divisions. For her sake, I had to break off a love affair, not of the most reputable order, with a girl in Hull. I will call her Louise. She was young, beautiful, and devoted to me. On the night of the 26th of August, we took our last walk together. And a few minutes before midnight, paused on a wooden bridge running across a kind of canal, locally termed a drain. We paused on the bridge, listening to the swirling of the current against the wooden piles, and waited for the stroke of midnight to part forever. In a few minutes' interval, she repeated, sotto voice, Longfellow's Bridge, the words of which, I stood on the bridge at midnight, seemed terribly appropriate. After nearly 25 years, I could never hear that piece recited without feeling a deadly chill. 
and the whole scene of two souls in agony again rising before me. Well, midnight struck and we parted. But Louise said, grant me one favor, the only one that I shall ever ask you on this earth. Promise to meet me here twelve months from tonight, at this same hour. I demurred at first, thinking it would be bad for both of us, and only reopen partially healed wounds. At last, however, I consented, saying, well, I will come if I am alive. But she said, say alive or dead. I said, very well then, we'll be dead or alive. The next year I was on the spot a few minutes before the time, and punctual to the stroke of midnight, Louise arrived. By this time I had begun to regret the arrangement I had made, but it was of too solemn a nature to put aside. I therefore kept, kept the appointment, but said that I did not care to renew the compact. Louise, however, persuaded me to renew it for one more year, and I consented, much against my will, and we again left each other repeating the same formula, dead or alive. The next year after passed rapidly until the first week in July, when I was shot dangerously in the thigh by a fisherman named Thomas Files of Hull, a reputed smuggler. A party of four of us had hired this ten-ton yowl to go yachting around the Yorkshire coast and amuse ourselves by shooting seabirds amongst the millions of them at Flamborough Head. The third or fourth day out I was shot in the right thigh by the skipper Piles. And the day after, one and a quarter ounce of number two shot were cut out, therefore, by the Coast Guard surgeon at Burlington, at, at Bridington Quay, whose name I forgot at the moment, assisted by Dr. Alexander Mackey at the Black Lion Hotel. The affair was in all the papers at the time about a column, about a column and it appearing in the Eastern Morning News of Hull. As soon as that was able to be removed, two or three weeks, I was taken home where Dr. Melbourne King of Hull attended me. The day and the night, the 26th of August, came. I was then unable to walk without crutches, and that for only a short distance, so, so I had to be wheeled about in a bath chair. The distance to the trysting place being rather long, and the time and the circumstances being very peculiar, I did not avail myself of the services of my usual attendant, but, but specifically retained an old servant of the family, who frequently did confidential uh, commissions for me, and who knew Miss Louise well. We set forth without beat of drum, and arrived at the bridge about a few minutes to midnight. I remember that it was brilliant starlight night, and I did not think that there was any moon at all events, especially at that hour. Old Bob as he was always affectionately called, wheeled me to the bridge, helped me out of the bath chair, and gave me my crutch. I walked onto the bridge and leaned, back, leaned my back against the white painted rail top, then lighted by briar root. It had a comfortable smoke. I was very much annoyed that I had allowed myself to be persuaded to come a second time and determined to tell Louise positively that this should be our last meeting. Besides, now, I did not consider it fair to Miss Kay, with whom I was again negotiating. So, if anything, it was in rather a sulky frame of mind that I awaited Louise. Just as the quarters before the hour began to chime, I distinctly heard clink, clink of the little, of little, of little brass heels, which she always wore, sounding on the long flag causeway, leading for the 200 yards up the bridge. As she got nearer, 
I could see her pass lamp after lamp in rapid succession, while the strokes of the large clock at home resounded through the stilly night. At last, the patter, patter of the tiny feet, sounded on the woodwork on the bridge, and I saw her distinctly pass under the lamp at my side. When she got close to me, I saw that she had neither hat nor cape on, and concluded that she had taken a cab at the further end of the fine causeway, and, it being a very warm night, had left her wraps in the cab, and, for the purpose of effect, had come the short distance in her evening dress. Clink, clink, went the brass heels, and she seemed about passing me when I suddenly, urged by an impulse of affection, stretched out my arms to receive her. She passed through them, intangible, impalpable, and as she looked at me, I distinctly saw her lips move and form the words, dead or alive. I even heard the words, but not with my outward ears, with something else, some other sense, what I know not. I felt startled, surprised, but not afraid, until a moment afterwards, when I felt, but could not see, some other presence following her. I could feel, though I could not hear, the heavy, clumsy thud of feet following her, and my blood seemed turned to ice. Recovering myself with an effort, I shouted out the, uh, to old Bob, who was safely ensconced with the bath chair in a nook out of sight around the corner. Bob, who, Bob, who just passed you now? In an instant, the old Yorkshire man was by my side. Narrow and one passed me, sir. Nonsense, Bob, I replied. I told you that I was coming to meet Miss Louise, and she had just passed me on the bridge and must have passed you because there was nowhere else she could go. You don't mean to tell me you didn't see her. The old man replied solemnly, Maester Rob, there's something uncanny about it. I, I heard her come on the bridge and off of it, and I know them clickety heels anywhere, but I'm doomed, sir. If she, I'm doomed sure if she passed me. I'm thinking we'd we, we better gang. And gang, we did. And it was the small hours of the morning, getting daylight, before we left off talking over the affair and went to bed. The next day, I made inquiries from Louise's family about her and ascertained that she had died in Liverpool three months previously, being apparently delirious for a few hours before her death, and our parting compact evidently weighing on her mind as she kept repeating, dead or alive, shall I be there? To the utter bewilderment of her friends, who could not define her meaning, being, of course, entirely unaware of our agreement. This completes examples of the so-called pack cases. Okay, so we're going to stop there, and uh, we will continue this maybe during the week this week, but more unlikely, let me get back in here, more unlikely next Sunday we will be continuing this. Let me uh, straighten up here. I moved my computer yesterday, so it's a little off the background, so i got to fix that. But, uh, yeah, we will be continuing this uh, hopefully just next Sunday. Okay, tomorrow Nancy Matz is going to be with us because uh, the uh, guest for Friday had to have the guest that's that's going on Friday needed to have the Friday spot, so Nancy's moved to tomorrow, so she'll be here at six thirty p.m. Pacific tomorrow, and in keeping with the week being Valentine's week, she's going to be talking about twin flames. So uh, be, be please be sure to be here for that six thirty p.m. Pacific. If you like the show. Share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here. We're just trying to get the word out about our show. And uh, 
you know, hopefully we do that. And that that's what happens is, is word of mouth. If you watch from Facebook today and you like the show, and a lot of you do, please be sure to hit that follow button because we're always looking for followers. If you watch from uh, YouTube, please be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't done so. Anyway, I'll see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. with uh, Medium Nancy Mats talking about Twin Flames. Have a great rest of your Sunday, guys.